Hi there and welcome to this week's podcast from journalism.co.uk where we'll be taking a deeper look into the adoption of VR and 360 degree video for non-fiction. Can this immersive form of storytelling really be an empathy machine? And if so, what challenges and responsibilities does this pose to content creators? The iDocs 2016 conference in Bristol last week saw the discussion of experimental storytelling and what effects those new mediums may have not only on the media industry, but the viewers themselves. Virtual reality initiatives are being announced almost daily, and with the release of VR documentaries such as Clouds Over Sidra and Millions March NYC, this medium is well and truly making an impact in the world of non-fiction. But when the concept of presence is used within VR documentaries, so that's a sense of immersion with what they're watching, This physically changes how we engage with the story and ultimately how we feel about it and its characters. Of course, this raises ethical challenges for VR documentary makers if the medium really is to be the empathy machine that the filmmaker Chris Milk famously named it, capable of making audiences better relate to the lives of others. Mandy Rose, director of the University of England's Digital Cultures Research Centre, spoke about this very subject at iDocs last week, offering less an argument but some notes towards an agenda for VR non-fiction research. As a spatial medium, VR has something in common with theatre. As a technology, it can be situated within what Laura Mulvey calls the cinematic tradition of optical illusions that exploit a peculiar ability of the human eye to deceive the mind. So where in cinema we were offered that illusion of movement, VR offers the illusion of being there that is known as presence. And I think for those of us excited by the agency that emerging documentary can offer the user, in iDocs as tools for thought, for collaboration and for mobilisation, these developments feel uncomfortable. I'm ambivalent about the emergence of a cutting-edge documentary form which requires the viewer to be strapped into a screen with, in this first generation of work at least, their agency often limited to the ability to turn their head and look around. Of course, we know that virtual reality itself is nothing new. It's 30 years since Jaron Lanier came up with the term virtual reality, a technology that could transport users to other worlds and forge deeper human connections, but the technology wasn't there to deliver it to the commercial market at that time. However, his work gave rise to a body of research and critical writing that can be used as a resource in the industry now. Rose explains how American journalist Nonny de la Peña continued this research and undertook the first experiments in VR non-fiction storytelling around eight years ago. While VR didn't come into the mainstream in the 90s, VR research continued in the military, medical and educational settings in particular. And it was a university lab in Barcelona that provided the context for the first experiments in VR non-fiction storytelling by Noni de la Peña around eight years ago. So Noni, an American journalist, sometime documentary maker, and later Annenberg Fellow at the University of Southern California's Cinema School of Arts, was inspired by an encounter with VR presence to develop what she went on to call immersive journalism. Since then, Noni has created a series of virtual reality pieces, including Hunger in LA, 2012, Use of Force, 2013, and last year's Kia, through which she has been exploring the potential for someone in a VR experience to bear witness to a digital representation of an event that has occurred in the real world. At the heart of each of Nolly's pieces is, I'm calling, verite or found audio. 
And along with this audio, she uses CGI representations of people and events unfolding. So Hunger in LA represents events in a food line in LA that was overwhelmed by numbers of people, so people couldn't get to the front and get their food, and, and someone in the queue goes into a diabetic seizure. Nonny, who intends that her work confronts issues around the abuse of power and human rights, has called the persuasive aspect of this approach embodied digital rhetoric. And her experiments shared over the last five years at Sundance, Sheffield Dockfest, Tribeca and elsewhere, before anyone else was working in this way, have been the single most powerful editorial influence on the emerging field of non-fiction VR. Moreover, Palmer Lucky was Nonny's intern at USC and worked on the prototype goggles that she used in developing Hunger in LA before leaving to start his own venture. That venture was Oculus Rift, sold to Facebook in 2014 for $2 billion. In other words, Nonny's experiments in immersive journalism can also be seen to have had a direct influence on the technology <coughs> innovation which lies behind VR now exploding onto the consumer market with all the kind of competitors to Oculus Rift that have been emerging, Google Cardboard, Samsung Gear, Hive, HTC, etc. But when watching non-fiction VR content, how does the user feel? What difference does it make when you're wearing a headset, looking at footage of real-life scenarios, feeling like you're with them, sometimes feeling helpless and in that sense detached from what you're seeing because you can't physically reach out and touch the characters, confusing your brain into thinking you're there, even when you're not physically present. One review of Nonny's Hunger in LA um, in Ver on, at Verge.com will stand for many reactions and is suggestive, I think, of both the kind of buzz <coughs> and the problematics of the audience experience of VR. So here's that review of Hunger in LA. I knew the setup of the story going in, and I immediately knew the diabetic man was suffering his attack. I turned, and despite the crew animation, the illusion held. My heart rate picked up, and I impulsively wanted to do something. My first inclination was to kneel down and hold him steady if I could. But at the same time, I knew how ridiculous that would look to the cable wrangler, wrangler that was standing behind me in the real world. I guess the quote is suggestive of the effective power of this virtual experience. Also of the tension between the immersion and the spectator user position. That feeling of presence and dislocation. And my experience in, 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 in some of these works is that I find myself asking, what am I doing here? Feeling a little bit like one of the angels in Wings of Desire. Present in an experience unseen by those around you with magical access to people's thoughts and feelings. Perhaps actually it's less like a Wings of Desire and more like a dream because you have no bodily presence. People have noted that you never see your arms and legs in a dream and you know, so you have no, you have no kind of bodily presence there. So there's this uncanny quality of the experience of, of many VR pieces. But we must remember that the uncanny has been a kind of um, an issue that comes and goes in media history. The uncanny of photography, the uncanny of silent film, which somehow sound then kind of settled for us. So can VR documentaries actually make audiences empathise more with what they're seeing, more than they would necessarily do on the television? Topics covered in the more well-known immersive documentaries have been focused on the bigger news stories, such as the Ebola outbreak and the refugee crisis. Rose discusses the work of Verse, 
who have produced innovative work designed around the idea of the medium being an empathy machine and that watching VR documentaries or 360 degree video using a headset can help audiences connect with the characters they're seeing alongside them. The empathy discourse that has come to the fore in discussion of VR emanates from the company most active in making VR work, Verse. An entity started by Chris Milk and Aaron Koblin, creative director of Google Creative Labs. Individually and together, the two have been responsible for some outstanding, innovative, interactive work. In the last couple of years, their VR output has been prolific in partnership with the New York Times, Vice News, and most notably, I think, with the United Nations. Working with UN Special Advisor Gabo Aurora, Chris Milk and Verse have created three VR documentaries, or rather 360 video documentaries, Clouds Over Sidra, Waves of Grace about the Ebola outbreak, and then launched this week, My Mother's Win, a story from the point of view of a mother in a Palestinian family in Gaza. These are 360 projects, video projects, so there's no capacity for moving around and exploring within the environment. Interactivity is the, the head movement. So Clouds Over Sidra represents a day in the life of a girl in the Zatari refugee camp in Jordan. So I've just kind of, the point is that they've kind of gone for these kind of big news stories in these UN projects. But these pieces that they've made, they've taken to the World Economic Forum at Davos. And, you know, Aurora, from a UN point of view, is backing this new technology for its ability to kind of cut through the media noise and get the attention of funders and decision makers. So the TED talk where Chris Milk expressed this idea of the empathy machine came kind of hot on the heels of their visit to Davos last spring. And as he said then, we've just started to scratch the surface of VR. It's not a video game peripheral. It connects humans to other humans in a profound way that I've not ever seen in any other media. And it can change our perception of each other. That's why I think virtual reality actually has the potential to change the world. So the empathy discourse around VR has been discussed by Ainsley Sutherland in an MIT Open Doc Lab case study of the VR art project, The Machine to Be Another. Sutherland raises a variety of problems with the idea of the empathy machine, from the vagueness with which it's being used to the problem of projection, and cites our colleague um, Gillian Swanson's cultural prehistory of empathy, the tender instinct is the hope of the world, in talking about the problem that actually empathy, you know, the name of empathy is often just kind of imagining someone else's situation. And Sutherland talks about the kind of phenomenological issue that while VR might offer you the chance to stand in the position occupied by another, it can't offer you the possibility of understanding their internal state, only the physical conditions that might influence them. But the empathy idea presents another problem for me. The notion that the world's problems arise from a, from a scarcity of feeling rather than from issues of power, inequality and exploitation of people and planetary resources. The empathy machine idea seems to me a wish of our hyper-connected age, when we witness so much yet feel so powerless, if only we could help. So Milk standing in front of the TED audience, in a sense to me represents a, a perfect storm of hype, where a documentary fantasy of saving the world meets Silicon Valley's fantasy of the techno fix. It seems odd to go back to 1964. But Marshall McLuhan reminds us to think beyond the car, to the roads, the 
highways, the parking lots, the pollution, the community, the damage that cars created for, for communities and people. And in the last 15 years, we've seen a similar pattern. We all looked at the websites, and we somehow didn't see the ground of the internet as it was emerging around us, that ground that then, I think, has become very clear to us in the last few years. So at this moment in the history of VR, I'd suggest with the help of looking back to those early resources, we need to think about the ground of VR, because that ground is going to be expanding very fast. Goldman Sachs research, sorry, what are they talking about? $80 billion in 2025. It's going to be massive. And there are people who are very interested in our activities in these environments. For more podcasts from journalism.co.uk, please visit our website.